Do you want the good news or the bad news? How good is the good news? It's pretty good. And the relative badness of the bad? Mm, middling? Good news first, please. Well, at the recent COP26 conference in Glasgow, more than 141 countries endorsed a deal to end deforestation over the next decade. Okay, that is pretty good. So how much forest does that protect? Well, if you look at the countries that have signed the deal, they cover 90.94% of the world's forests. So this agreement has been endorsed by some of the big political players, like the EU, China and the US, as well as major forested countries such as Brazil, Democratic Republic of the Congo and Papua New Guinea. I mean, I'm pretty impressed so far, but I'm guessing this is where the middling news kicks in. Afraid so. Okay, let me have it. Actually, I'm going to let Dr Victor Leclerc tell you about it. And Victor is? A researcher at Kew Gardens in London who specialises in the ecological impact of the timber industry. So the COP26, of course, these initiatives are super important just to keep the attention on it. But from an actual enforcement standpoint, there's very little that they can enforce on the countries that are not following what they signed. There's literally nothing you can do. Wait, so there's no real enforcement of this deal? I'm afraid so. That's the problem. The deal is great in principle, but as it stands, we have no way of ensuring that it'll actually work. This big question remains. How do we make sure deforestation actually stops? Okay, that is pretty middling. I feel thoroughly middled. Let's see if we can lift the mood a little. My name is India Block. And I'm Ollie Stratford. And today, we're going to be exploring the issue that Victor just set out for us. Even if countries are pledging to eliminate deforestation and clamp down on the global trade in illegally logged timber, what can actually be done to stop it? Right, because this is an issue that people are facing worldwide. But it sometimes seems that governments are powerless to stop it. Because how can you tell if the wood you're importing, which might have already been processed and made into furniture or guitars or ornaments, was sourced legally or illegally? Wood is wood. Because unless it's something incredibly obvious... Like 12 pallets of table tennis bats made from South American mahogany. How do you even know? It's a conundrum. But over the past few weeks, Ollie and I have been investigating a new initiative that thinks it may have the answer to this problem. Its name is World Forest ID, and it's an international organisation being supported by a whole range of industry players, from the US Forest Service to the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew and the Forest Stewardship Council. Its premise is simple. What if there was a way to use scientific analysis to be able to tell exactly what species a piece of wood is from and exactly where it was grown? Because once you know precisely where something was grown, you can also likely tell whether it's been harvested legally or illegally. And Victor, who we heard from before, is one of the researchers leading the project over at Kew. He has a pretty memorable way of thinking about what World Forest ID is. Yeah, people think always like human CSI and, and stuff like that. We're just the tree detectives. It's a bit less sexy, but people do appreciate trees, so I think it's important. <laughs> it's forensics for trees. Tree SI. <laughs> Lovely stuff. But that's kind of what it is. Using science to gather evidence, which can then be used in court in cases surrounding deforestation and illegal logging. So that policy and legal side is what I've been looking into. 
Whereas I've been focusing on the science that makes this all possible, including sitting down with Phil Guillory, the executive director of the programme, who explained to me the motivation behind what they're doing. Over many years, became quite frustrated with the, with the challenge of, of finding fraud in the wood supply chains. It's estimated that 20 to 30% of the wood uh, uh, harvested in the world and sold is uh, illegally sourced. And that can be a challenge for anyone in supply chains to really identify and eliminate from those supply chains. So that's where um, World Forest ID comes in. So there's one thing to clear up before we dive into this, which is the relationship between illegal logging and deforestation. Because they're different things, and while there are clear connections between the two, it's important to stress the differences too. For instance, illegal logging isn't the only or even the main driver of deforestation. So illegal logging, uh, which is sometimes known as uh, forest degradation, is rarely, not, not never, but rarely a driver of kind of full deforestation and fully releasing the carbon held in the soil, in the, in the um, canopy and all the rest of it. So the much bigger threat from a carbon perspective is deforestation for agricultural products. That voice you just heard is Jade Saunders. She's a fellow at the UK's Chatham House Policy Institute, whose work focuses on forest governance and environmental crime. She's also a member of World Forest ID's board, where she advises on law enforcement and technology. It's interesting that Jade mentioned agriculture, because that's something that Phil brought up too. To his mind, whereas agriculture is the greater problem, the two are linked. And if you want to solve deforestation, there's a lot you can learn from tackling illegal logging too. Illegal logging is often a precursor to deforestation. So, you know, loggers will come in first and then after that, you know, it'll be deforested for agriculture. So if you can catch that up front, that can really have an impact on deforestation. The problem, of course, is how do you catch them to begin with? When you hear it laid out like that, it's clear how vast the scale of the problem is and how intertwined illegal logging and environmental damage is. Finding a way to combat it could quite literally help us save the world. Indeed. But the problem is that it's not simply a case of swooping in and stopping illegal activity at the source. And then you have to add in the complicating factor of globalisation. Wooden design objects will often have travelled vast distances from the forest the tree it's made from was felled. It's a huge, complex and very porous system to deal with. The timber trade is an incredibly complex structure because we live in a very global world. We can cut a tree in Brazil, we can cut a similar tree in, in the Congo, we can ship them to Asia, they can turn into a chair, they can be sh those chairs can be shipped to another continent, to Europe. And then you get a chair with multiple trees and multiple species and then you can start making the puzzle, which is sometimes just impossible. Uh, we have a, an example here at Q, an oak chair that has 16 oak species in them. So every step in the early stages of this supply chain process is a point where illegally sourced wood can sneak in. And by the very nature of criminal activity, it's not exactly going to advertise its presence. I mean, the counterfeit logs aren't going to be wearing an obvious fake moustache. Well, you say that, but Victor did tell me about one particularly audacious attempt from wood smugglers to get a piece of illicit wood through customs. 
I haven't done, I haven't done a lot of cases myself. I've usually do the supporting science, but I, there was one that I remember in I think it was in the United States, where there was a log imported in a harbor, and there was another log taped inside of that log. So, yeah, so they put an illegal one in another tree to get it imported that way, which I thought was quite ingenious. <laughs> ah, this elaborate matryoshka doll of a log is just the kind of skullduggery I'd expect on a primetime episode of Triesi's Special Branch. <laughs> I know, right? But often the subterfuge is far more mundane than the old log-within-a-log trick. In fact, it's often a case of following a paper trail to try and catch a forgery. At some point in the supply chain, legitimate paperwork is slapped onto wood that has a far murkier origin. It's a, it's a little bit of both, but the main thing is that it's, it's illegal wood is being substituted in for legally sourced wood. So there's claims that this wood came from a particular country, a particular forest, where at some point in the supply chain, something else got substituted in that was less expensive or easier to obtain. And that is very difficult to prove. And we know it's not a case of tracking illegal activity in the traditional sense. This isn't a material that's being smuggled across borders in nighttime crossings over mountain passes. It's coming through ports and official channels, but just disguised. Yeah, you can't get to the root of the problem unless you know what you're looking at. It's all well and good setting intentions to source wood sustainably and bringing in sanctions against illegal deforestation. But you have to find the smoking gun first. You need to have traceability before you can be accountable for what's happening in your supply base. You can't, you, you can't take responsibility for social and environmental impacts in your supply base unless you actually know where the product that you are buying comes from. Um, and that can be a log, that can be plywood, that can be soy, you know, animal feed, that can be cocoa. It doesn't matter. They all need meaningful traceability. Even to a trained eye, catching a shipment of mislabeled wood is a tall order. And as Victor mentioned, if it's already been turned into furniture, then there can be multiple species of wood in a single object. Exactly, and even if the wood in front of you matches the species description on the paperwork, there's no way of guaranteeing that it was cut down where it says it was cut down. One of the things we realised was that there's an enormous amount of supply chain documentation floating around in the sector, which we suspected and ultimately investigations have kind of backed up that suspicion, which we suspected had very little relationship with the actual product, the actual wood. Forging documents is a lot easier than hiding logs and other shipments. Unfortunately for the forests, that means it's very easy currently to play around with the paperwork and move large volumes of illegal wood. And it's not just that auditing paperwork to find fraud is dull, although I certainly wouldn't want to be the one lumbered with it. Relying on bureaucracy has serious limitations. You can start to unpick that with paper-based systems and auditing, uh, but they're so vulnerable to fraud and they're incredibly onerous, you know, and they're, well, incredibly onerous. I don't know, maybe their their onerosity, that's not a word, but you know what I mean, is proportionate to how important it is to establish traceability. But anyway, um, I think... What the science does is allow you to cut through that paperwork defence and say, 
you know, actually you've bought into a bureaucratic system you're, that isn't strong enough. So what Jade is talking about speaks to another negative side effect of the illegal wood trade that this programme could help to eliminate. Getting the right paperwork and forestry approvals is very expensive, and it only really makes financial sense for the big timber companies that can absorb the cost thanks to the economics of scale. Right, and the small operations, the family or community-run businesses, the people that have the biggest incentive to harvest the natural resources they live with carefully and with greater consideration to any environmental cost, they can't necessarily afford to access these schemes that prove their wood is legitimate. So it was kind of how do you how do you create laws that don't just turn into a massive bureaucratic burden on companies that actually doesn't even have a meaningful impact on the ground it's just a huge document collecting exercise um, and where we landed was this science-based traceability piece this kind of can you actually prove that the documents that say it's species A when it's species B are fraudulent or you know were used inappropriately can you use science to understand where something was harvested in a way that will make that that fake inventory or whatever you know null and void as a, as a as a defense um, against prosecution it's kind of the dream isn't it a simple scientific test that can blast through the obscuring veil of paperwork and cut down on the hours of work required to try and suss out if that paperwork is legitimate. This wasn't such an outlandish proposal. There really is a scientific solution to the identification problem. That's where what we do is using science, using the chemistry, the chemicals that are found in wood products, is to be able to test that. And if you have the reference samples, if you have samples from that forest from where that was harvested, to compare it to, you can compare the chemical signatures between the, the harvested wood, the wood that you have questions about, where it came from, you can compare it to the forests from where that was sourced. <laughs> it makes it sound so simple. We'll get into the science bit shortly, but yes, in a nutshell, this is the World Forest ID Programme. So, with a database of enough wood samples collected from enough locations, any wood suspected of not being exactly what it says on the paperwork can be run through the system, like we do for humans with DNA or fingerprints. Of course, you need a good library of samples to begin with, but once you have that, you're looking at an empirical method of verifying a piece of wood is what it says it is, which represents a major improvement on the current system. I think it could be genuinely game-changing. I think that the laws are great, but it's extremely difficult to enforce the laws because of the amount of forged, fake, misused, confused paperwork that's out there in the, um, in the sector. Um, and I think that all of the laws are going to be, will remain vulnerable um, until, uh, until World Forest ID is in place and functioning. So. There's the question of working with the scientific method to cut through this tangle of paperwork. A test that allows you to verify that, yes, this piece of timber in front of you is what it says it is, and where it says it is from. And crucially, the test isn't necessarily working out what the wood is, but flagging what it isn't. There isn't time for DNA testing each batch. You only need to know if there's a disconnect between the label and the product. If the test shows that the wood doesn't look like it came from the forest where it says it was felled in, you know you have an issue. 
Then, if need be, you can dig a little deeper with more tests to work out exactly what it is in the first place. So, how do they actually do all of this? Because I can understand that if a tree species is locked to a very specific area of forest, you could figure out where its timber has come from. But what about those species which grow across a vast area? How do you tell Scots pine grown in Spain from that grown in Siberia? Bill has the answer to that. The process is... For example, with stable isotopes, every, every piece of wood has, is made up of, of different elements, has you know, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur contained in that wood. And each of those, each of those elements has, um, it has a stable isotope ratio that is slightly different, and it's different based on where, uh, where that uh, plant or animal even was, was grown or was raised. So while the species remains consistent, that ratio of elements is going to change based upon location. Exactly. And that's determined by the things such as soil, rainfall, temperature and so on. And that's what makes it possible to start getting the information you need. And with those very slight variations in the stable isotopes using uh, mass spectrometry, chemists can actually get a signature that is unique to that piece of wood, to that you know, that stump in the forest. And that allows those signatures then to be compared and where they're different, then they can, then they can distinguish saying, okay, they look very similar. So then it probably came from that forest or they look very radically different. So it probably came from a different part of the world than, than that, that area. So is this new technology then? Well, it's improving all the time, but no, not really. Or at least not all of the things they're doing are cutting edge. They're familiar techniques. They just haven't been applied to trees in a systematic way in the past. These techniques are not new. They're used in agriculture. They're used in Europe to distinguish, for example, to be able to show British pork versus Danish pork. So if someone's trying to substitute in cheaper Danish pork or bacon into the UK, it's used to distinguish that. Or if, if a fizzy wine is champagne or not champagne, you can use these techniques to do it. So what's prevented the uptake in forestry then? Why only now? Sampling. But one of the challenges to all of these sciences is to be able to have the reference data sets. Even if you had a, te- a technology that could, at that port, test a product, if you don't have the reference data sets from the forest to make that comparison, you can't, you can't use that test. So that's what we're about, is to build the foundation to allow that testing, t- testing to happen. Right, so those libraries of wood samples just haven't been built before. Precisely. And it turns out Phil can't resist a true crime comparison either. A way to describe it is you hear about you know CSI and murder, murder cases, and they have you know they have blood at the at the murder scene, and they can do genetic analysis on the at, at on that blood, but they have to have something to compare it with. They have to have the DNA of the suspect. If they don't have a suspect and they just have the blood, the testing doesn't tell them anything. And that's the same way with wood products: is that you need to have you can do the test and get very precise information but you have to have those reference data sets. You have to know the chemical signatures from that forest to, to make those comparisons. So I'm guessing you can't just march into any old forest and start snapping off twigs, hoovering up leaves and shoveling them into evidence bags. No, no, no. 
Although it is a process that can be undertaken by a trained layperson, the World Forest ID team has a strict system for sample collection. We want to get from, from each tree, from each sample, we want to get some, a piece of wood about the th size of your thumb, uh, and we want to get two pieces of, of that wood out of a tree. If it's at a harvest site, often we go to harvest sites, that's very easy. You go where a tree's been felled, you take a chainsaw and pull out the chunks of, of wood, take some leaves, which we, we can use for things like genetic analysis. Um, but when, if it's a live tree, we don't want to cut them down. So we have special tools using electric power drills with batteries or even where we can't, a, 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 a tool we call the Pickering Punch, where you can punch a hole into a tree and pull out those pieces of wood that are non-destructive. It, uh, it doesn't kill the tree, but it gives us enough material to be able to use all the different techniques. And processing those samples must have a similarly precise routine to follow, I imagine. Right. There are so many samples that they need to collect that an efficient system is of the utmost importance. And although the sampling itself is pretty hands-on, there is also the technology that's required to track everything. We have protocols, very specific protocols, about how to go into the forest and collect the products. So we need to collect you know, hundreds of thousands of samples we need to be able to do it at scale and quickly. So we have, a, uh, for example, we have a phone app to be able to, collectors to be able to go into the forest, collect a wood, uh, a wood sample, record that, record the GPS coordinates, record, use barcoding, and be able to then track that, that sample all the way through the process of, of sending it to Q Botanical Gardens, who then send samples out to the testing labs to build these reference data sets. Ah, so this is something that Jade discussed too. Internally, World Forest ID have been having a lot of conversations about who exactly should be doing this collecting. I've thought about setting up projects where you train like indigenous groups to sample in their own lands and that kind of thing. And part of me feels like that's absolutely the right way to go because it's their land, it will bring them into the process, all of the rest of it. Part of me feels like it's a very like one hit project. Um, and what is the point of building capacity in those groups to take samples, to have, you know, the app on their phone, all the rest of it, which is, it's, it's a fairly, not, not challenging process, but like, you know, it's not, it's not immediately easy to go and be a sample collector. So currently, trained collectors working for ecological research institutes are leading collecting expeditions in places such as Cameroon and the Republic of Congo. But getting enough boots on the ground is a challenge. I think the main challenge for us is to get enough funding so we can actually sample all the trees because we have to send teams out, we have to train those teams. We use a specific sampling protocol as well and when it's sampled, gets sampled in the forest, it immediately goes in a, in a bag, it gets fake, vacuum pulled, it gets shipped to queue. The whole process takes time, takes man hours, it takes money. Another thing you have to think about in relation to all of this is that World Forest ID isn't only a scientific enterprise, it's also trying to intersect with policy and provide the evidence needed to actually enforce things like the COP agreement we talked about right at the start. And this is what you've been looking into, right? So how does it affect the sampling? That's the key question, and it's one I put to Jade. How many samples does World Forest ID actually need? A scientist will answer that one way, but a policy person will answer it another. It's like, okay, well, what's, what's the law that you're trying to prove that somebody broke? Because if the law is, you know, uh, relates to protected areas 
or a, a particular species that CITES, you know, on Appendix 1 of CITES, you absolutely can't trade it. You need very few samples, actually, to show that that is that product. So obviously you want this sample library to be as extensive as possible. But this is a real-world program with budgetary constraints and so on. So you also need to factor in what is actually going to be useful for it to achieve its legal and political aims. So it's always this intersection between the legal framework and the science and the kind of the nature of the supply chain, uh, which is what, you know, keeps us all grinding our teeth at night, <laughs> frankly, but also is what, what makes it exciting. Because if it was just technology, it would be, it would be exciting too, but it wouldn't, probably wouldn't have the, uh, the impact that it, it potentially can have. Okay, so as a rough guide, they're thinking maybe they need half a million samples. But like Jade says, that's all dependent upon the legal frameworks they're trying to respond to. And legal considerations are a huge determining factor in collection protocol. Because if you're going to be using these tests and reference materials in courts, the samples need to be very carefully collected and maintained, because otherwise a good lawyer is going to be able to tear them to shreds. And one of the other critical parts of what we've always tried to do from the beginning is to ensure that the samples are collected legally, exported legally, um, all the you know appropriate paperwork, phytosanitary and all that kind of stuff is in place because we ultimately want this to result or be able to result in court cases and for that for the World Forest ID reference material to be kind of admissible in court it needs to be collected under these quite controlled circumstances um, and chain of custody you know we've got our own kind of traceability uh, at our end for the reference material. Right, and you also mentioned budgetary constraints. Just how much is this going to cost to realise the true potential of the World Forest ID programme? That's something I was keen to know the answer to, so I asked Phil for a figure. You know, we think maybe $50 million we could map out the world's forests, um, but if you think of that it can completely disrupt the illegal logging and deforestation, that's a pretty small amount of money to be able to do that. And, you know, that sounds like an excellent deal. I mean, according to Interpol, the illegal logging industry is worth $152 billion every year, not to mention the incalculable social environmental costs. So, $50 million to set up a database that could stop it in its tracks seems like a steal. When you put it like that, it really does make sense. And as Victor pointed out, as technology advances, they can increasingly take advantage of artificial intelligence systems that can sift and sort and match at speeds that humans can't begin to compete with. AI will be a big player in all of this in the next year, specifically for data analysis. Um, when, we, when we do this classification or this species identification, we have to build models, and these models have then have to say to us, oh, we think it's this species, or we think it's this species. Now, when you use AI, you make those models a bit smarter, you make them a bit better. And AI also allows to combine different technologies into one model to give you a better, a better answer. And it's really the goal, especially at Q, for in the next two years to fully develop this machine learning aspect and AI aspect. So, while the physical labour required to go out and collect these samples from as many locations around the world as possible is a big upfront cost, once the data is collected, it's really down to the computers. 
a computer can delve into the patterns, delve into the data, and give out the best responses. And the specific thing is about machine learning is that you make the model smarter while you're doing it. So the more you do it, the better the model becomes at this. It becomes it just becomes a super a super brain of data analysis. So you could put 50 scientists in a room, I would still take a computer. <laughs> Preferably take a computer over that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's not just that computers keep boring number crunching to a minimum for us humans. AI can also help make the samples that are collected go further. Yeah, because if we have to sample every single forest, I imagine the costs are going to balloon and it will take decades to undertake. But with machine learning, samples can be used to extrapolate that data map of trees to encompass the globe. No, we don't need them from every single area of the forest and we don't need them from every single species. But what we do need and what I'm about to kick off is um, a really interesting um, approach to using machine learning and artificial intelligence to read more intelligently between sampled existing physical samples. So I hope that we will be in a situation to get that kind of half a million-ish samples, but actually provide location and species information for many, many more locations and species um, between those physical sampled locations by pulling in big data sets and using all of, the, all of the samples that we've got as training data for a machine learning algorithm, whatever they're called. I mean, if we've got to protect 90.94% of the world's forests, then we need all the help we can get. Well, you and Victor said right at the start of this podcast that the problem with all these promises made by politicians at COP is there's no way of enforcing these commitments. I'd say the World Forest ID programme seems a very promising way to start changing that. Precisely. Maybe they should just play this podcast to all the assembled diplomats next time around. Then we can swoop in and collect our Nobel Peace Prize. On an unrelated note, have you got $50 million lying around that you could lend me? Words on Wood, a podcast about forestry and how it intersects with design and architecture. Words on Wood is hosted by Ollie Stratford and me, India Block. It has been produced and edited by Evie Hall, and it's been made in collaboration with and supported by AHAC. 